Section 22 of The Common Reader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greta Butkote. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. Outlines. Free. Lady Dorothy Neville. She had stayed in a humble capacity for a week in the ducal household she had seen the troops of highly decorated human beings descending in couples to eat and descending in couples to bed she had surreptitiously from a gallery observed the duke himself dusting the miniatures in the glass cases while the duchess let her crochet fall from her hands as if in utter disbelief that the world had need of crochet from an upper window she had seen, as far as I could reach, gravel paths swerving round aisles of greenery and losing themselves in little woods designed to shed the shade without the severity of forests. She had watched the ducal carriage bowling in and out of the prospect and returning a different way from the way it went. And what was her verdict? A lunatic asylum. It is true that she was a lady's maid, and that Lady Dorothy Neville, had she encountered her on the stairs, would have made an opportunity to point out that that is a very different thing from being a lady. My mother never failed to point out the folly of workwomen, shop girls, and the like, calling each other ladies. All this sort of thing seemed to her to be mere vulgar humbug, and she did not fail to say so. What can we point out to Lady Dorothy Neville, that with all her advantages she had never learned to spell, that she could not write a grammatical sentence, that she lived for eighty-seven years and did nothing but put food into her mouth and slip gold through her fingers? But delightful though it is to indulge in righteous indignation, it is misplaced if we agree with the lady's maid that high birth is a form of congenital insanity, that the sufferer merely inherits the diseases of his ancestors and endures them, for the most part, very stoically, in one of those comfortably padded lunatic asylums which are known euphemistically as the stately homes of England. Moreover, the Walpoles are not ducal. Horace Walpole's mother was a Miss Shorter. There is no mention of Lady Dorothy's mother in the present volume, but her great-grandmother was Mrs. Oldfield, the actress, and to her credit. Lady Dorothy was exceedingly proud of the fact thus she was not an extreme case of aristocracy she was confined rather to a birdcage than to an asylum through the bars she saw people walking at large and once or twice she made a surprising little flight into the open air a gayer brighter more vivacious specimen of the caged tribe can seldom have existed so that one is forced at times to ask whether what we call living in a cage is not the fate that wise people condemned to a single sojourn upon earth would choose. 
to be at large is after all to be shut out to waste most of life in accumulating the money to buy and the time to enjoy what the lady dorothys find clustering and glowing about their cradles when their eyes first open as hers opened in the year eighteen twenty six at number eleven berkeley square horace walpole had lived there her father lord orford gambled it away in one night's play the year after she was born but walterton hall in norfolk was full of carving and mantelpieces and there were rare trees in the garden and a large and famous lawn no novelist could wish a more charming and even romantic environment in which to set the story of two little girls grown up wild yet secluded reading bossuet with their governess and riding out on their ponies at the head of a tenantry on polling day nor can one deny that to have had the author of the following letter among one's ancestors would have been a source of inordinate pride it is addressed to the norwich bible society which had invited lord orford to become its president i have long been addicted to the gaming table i have lately taken to the turf i fear are frequently blaspheme but i have never distributed religious tracts all this was known to you and your society notwithstanding which you think me a fit person to be your president god forgive your hypocrisy it was not lord orford who was in the cage on that occasion but alas lord orford owned another country house ilsington hall in dorsetshire and there lady dorothy came in contact first with the mulberry tree and later with mr thomas hardy and we get our first glimpse of the bars we do not pretend to the ghost of an enthusiasm for sailors homes in general no doubt mulberry trees are much nicer to look at but when it comes to calling people vandals who cut them down to build houses and to having footstools made from the wood and to carving upon those footstools inscriptions which testify that often and often has king george III taken his tea under this very footstool then we want to protest surely you must mean shakespeare but as her subsequent remarks upon mr hardy tend to prove lady dorothy does not mean shakespeare she warmly appreciated the works of mr hardy and used to complain that the county families were too stupid to appreciate his genius at its proper worth. George III, drinking his tea, the county families failing to appreciate Mr. Hardy. Lady Dorothy is undoubtedly behind the bars. Yet no story more aptly illustrates the barrier which we perceive hereafter between Lady Dorothy and the outer world than the story of Charles Darwin and the Blankets among her recreations lady dorothy made a hobby of growing orchids and thus got into touch with a great naturalist mrs darwin inviting her to stay with them remarked with apparent simplicity that she had heard that people who moved much in london society were fond of being tossed in blankets 
I am afraid, her letter ended, we should hardly be able to offer you anything of that sort. Whether in fact the necessity of tossing Lady Dorothy in a blanket had been seriously debated at dawn, or whether Mrs. Darwin obscurely hinted his sense of some incongruity between her husband and the Lady of the Orchids, we do not know. But we have a sense of two worlds in collision, and it is not the Darwin world that emerges in fragments. More and more do we see Lady Dorothy hopping from perch to perch, picking at groundsel here and at hemseed there, indulging in exquisite trills and roulades, and sharpening her beak against a lump of sugar in a large, airy, magnificently equipped bird cage. The cage was full of charming diversions. Now she illuminated leaves which had been macerated to skeletons, now she interested herself in improving the breed of donkeys. Next she took up the cause of silkworms, almost threatened Australia with a plague of them, and actually succeeded in obtaining enough silk to make a dress. Again, she was the first to discover that wood, gone green with decay, can be made at some expense into little boxes. She went into the question of funguses, and established the virtues of the neglected English truffle. She imported rare fish, spent a great deal of energy in vainly trying to induce storks and Cornish chuffs to breed in Sussex, painted on china, emblazoned heraldic arms, and attaching whistles to the tails of pigeons produced wonderful effects as of an aerial orchestra when they flew through the air. To the Duchess of Somerset belongs the credit of investigating the proper way of cooking guinea pigs, but Lady Dorothy was one of the first to serve up a dish of these little creatures at luncheon in Charles Street. But all the time the door of the cage was ajar. Raids were made into what Mr. Neville calls Upper Bohemia, from which Lady Dorothy returned with authors, journalists, actors, actresses, or other agreeable and amusing people. Lady Dorothy's judgment is proved by the fact that they seldom misbehaved, and some indeed became quite domesticated, and wrote her very gracefully turned letters. But once or twice she made a flight beyond the cage herself. These horrors, she said, alluding to the middle class, are so clever and we are so stupid. But then look how well they are educated while our children learn nothing but how to spend their parents' money. She brooded over the fact. Something was going wrong. She was too shrewd and too honest not to lay the blame partly, at least upon her own class. I suppose she can just about read, she said of one lady calling herself cultured, and of another. She is indeed curious and well adapted to open bazaars. But to our thinking, her most remarkable flight took place a year or two before her death in the Victoria and Albert Museum. I do so agree with you, she wrote, though I ought not to say so, that the upper class are very, I don't know what to say, but they seem to take no interest in anything but golfing, etc. One day I was at the Victoria and Albert Museum, just a few sprinkles of legs, for I'm sure they look too frivolous to have bodies and souls attached to them. But what softened the sight to my eyes were two little Japs poring over each article with a handbook. 
our bodies, of course, giggling and looking at nothing. Still worse, not one soul of the higher class visible. In fact, I never heard of any one of them knowing of the place, and for this we are spending millions. It is all too painful. It was all too painful, and the guillotine, she felt, loomed ahead. That catastrophe she was spared, for who could wish to cut off the head of a pigeon with a whistle attached to its tail? But if the whole birdcage had been overturned and the aerial orchestra sent screaming and fluttering through the air, we can be sure, as Mr. Joseph Chamberlain told her, that her conduct would have been a credit to the British aristocracy. End of section 22